Oh. Well, I'm glad I could have that little prayer with myself. <laughs> um, well, hello. I feel like I sort of need to reintroduce myself. You may not have known about it. We've been gone for um, quite a bit this summer. Uh, my wife and I were tall- tallying it up. Uh, we put 5,000 miles in our minivan this summer, um, which was with three kids in that car the whole time. So I'm at the perfect state of sanctification at this point. I cannot attain more. Um, uh, so we, it, was a good, it was a good time. We, we spent um, a week with my wife's family in Michigan. I, I don't know if you know this about my wife, but she's number eight of nine kids I'm an, I'm an only child, which makes her kind of interesting marital dynamic. Um, and uh, and uh, so her, I would say half of her siblings are in foreign missions around the world. And many of you know this. Um, so two of them are, are on an island. Two brothers are on the island of Yap, in Micronesia. We're talking about the middle of nowhere, Pacific. Uh, one brother's in, uh, in Palau. Um, she's got a sister in Africa. And so rarely does the family actually get together in, in mass. So this was the first time in a decade that the whole family was together. And with the grandkids and everything, this is a bit jaw-dropping, but with the grandkids, some like 63 people. And that's just immediate family. Um, so it was, it was um, that was had its sanctifying elements too. Um, no, it was a really good week. And then uh, I spent a couple of weeks teaching at Neshota House, which some of you may know, um, the Shota House is an Episcopal seminary in Wisconsin in the more Anglo-Catholic tradition, but very friendly to evangelical, the evangelical tradition as well. Um, Bishop Ed Salmon, who I think some of you know that name, is the current dean um, at Neshota House. So I spent two weeks there teaching on the Old Testament. I wanna, I'm going to reflect on that a little bit with you today because it, it, was, a, um, it was a positive experience for me um, on the spiritual level in multiple ways. I'll, I'll talk about that in a little bit. And then... Uh, and then we um, came to Birmingham for a few days, and then we headed down to, to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where I did some teaching at Knox Theological Seminary. So it's been, it's been a full and, and busy and rich summer, but I'll have to say this to you um, and with great sincerity. I, we have missed you all, and we've missed the Advent. I mean, we, we, I know you all have been doing your thing as well. Um, but part of the, part of the, um, the ritual of life at Neshota House, and many of you remember Heidi Kenner, of course. Heidi, Heidi's a graduate of Neshota. Um, one of the, it's really one of the last Benedictine communities in, um, in Protestant seminary education. So they work together, they pray together, they study together. It's that kind of community. It's very small um, in a beautiful setting there in Wisconsin. Have any of you been to Neshota House before? It's, it, you have, it, it's, it's actually a beautiful setting there. Um, but there's morning prayer Eucharist every morning, and there's even song every day. So you're in, And they do that every day of the year except for Sundays throughout the whole year. Um, and so that was part of the, the, so the, the ritual of, of the week was morning prayer at 8, evening prayer at, at, uh, at 4.30. Um, and, uh, and in those moments of prayer, you know, you all in Advent was, was coming to mind quite a bit. One of the things that as well during that time, I'll say a couple of things about this. Uh, for me, that was very um, instrumental and new. I hadn't really participated in anything like that before. For some of you, I mean, the, rich, the, the daily routine of the daily office, um, some of you may have experienced that before in some regular pattern. It was actually rather new for me. Um, and one of the things that I appreciated about it, and there were certain things that made my reform sensibilities kind of hack a little bit, but that's another story. But there's, um, but the, one of the things that I that I appreciated about it was this this old, monastic style chapel 
where the students and the professors sit antif- you know, related sort of antiphonally one to the other. And we read the Psalms every day. I mean, that's part of the, the, daily, the daily office. And if you are familiar with the daily office, you'll realize that the Psalms are read through in their totality once a month. And then um, the New Testament is supposed to be read through twice a year, and the Old Testament is meant to be read through once a year. And so you're getting into this scripture-saturated um, rhythm of worship where at first it's actually a little bit overwhelming the amount of scriptures that's being read to you. I mean, we read through large chunks of 1 Samuel and the David and Goliath and then, you know, the story about Nabal and, and, uh, and, uh, and David and his wife, Abigail. I mean, all this stuff's being read. And it just reminded me of the power and the effectiveness of the publicly read word of the Lord. And the other thing, too, that was actually quite interesting for me to reflect on in that setting of worship was the way in which the Psalms are antiphonally read one to the other here in morning prayer every day. And we're talking about large chunks of the Psalter, large chunks, and to the point where like my, you know, 30-second commercial brain, um, you know, for the first couple of days, it's trying to, you you just have, you you know, you're in second gear intellectually, you got to download it, you got to shift up to fourth at some point. And, and so you're sitting here, and they take these long, enormous breaks. You know, I don't know um, for example, um, Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. I'm like, dear Lord, someone say something. I mean, it's just not, I'm not used to that, right? Uh, but it's that kind of, um, there, there, there are these breaks there. But by the end of my time with these breaks, you, you actually began to think. It created space for effective reflection on the Psalter, and how important that is uh, to the shaping of who we are. This this is why the whole whole sort of genesis of this series that I want to do with you for the next three weeks in the Psalms, and just so that you kind of know where I'm going to go with this, the way in which I'm going to structure this, and it's not going to be a totalizing kind of effort, but the way I'd like to structure this is we have three weeks together. I want to do um, morning prayer today. I want to do evening prayer next week, and then the third week I want to do Compline. And to think about the ways in which the Psalms are situated there. Um, and today, of course, we're going we're to focus on uh, the Venita and the Jubilate, um, Psalm 95 and Psalm 100. And I'll really look at Psalm 100 with you. But why was all this of interest to me? Because in the middle of this reading of the Psalms back and forth every day, in the morning and in the night, and we covered lots of the Psalms in just a two-week period, um, there, I, I was reading with my students there at Neshota House, St. Augustine's, on Christian teaching or uh, De Doctrina. Have any of you fiddled with Augustine's De Doctrina before Christian teaching? Um, you know, Augustine, we, we have the, what we call the Sweet 16 at Beeson Divinity School, uh, which if you've been in the chapel before, you know these big figures who are up there haunting us down, looking down. Um, you have uh, Augustine and Athanasius and Thomas Cranmer and Luther and Calvin. They're all up there looking down. Well, Augustine's up there, and he's definitely there for a reason. I mean, Augustine is a significant figure in the history of the church. My admiration for Augustine only grows the more that I read him. And really, one could say that the Reformation, Luther and Calvin, if we'll just use those two pinnacle figures, Luther and Calvin, their battle for Reformed doctrine, or, or the doctrine of the gospel, we'll just put it that way, was a battle over the Bible, and it was also a battle over who's reading Augustine the best. I mean, who's reading the church? So in other words, it wasn't just Scripture, although that was extremely important, sola scriptura. 
but it was also who's reading the tradition well. And Augustine uh, plays a very important role in this. And in the reading of this with my students, I'm, I'm typically interested in Augustine's on Christian teaching because in that slim volume, the bishop, the newly minted bishop of Hippo, Augustine, is wrestling with students over how one is to read the Bible. That's what is of great interest to me. So that's typically the portions of, of uh, De Doctrina or on Christian teaching that I, I focus on uh, because I, I find it of, of most interest to my field. But his first, few, his first book is a book that raises the question and a very important question about, frankly, what is life about? I mean, it's a fundamental question. What is life about and how do we order our lives properly? And Augustine's answer to that question was, our lives are lives that are driven with one thing in mind. Which to me, whenever I hear someone talk about, you know, or you hear people, there's two kinds of people in life, right? The kind of people who categorize things into two things and the kind who don't. These sort of false, whenever I hear people raise these false dilemmas, it kind of goes in one ear and out the other. There's only one kind of this, there's only one kind of that. Or that kind of reductionistic thing to me tends to unloose the complexities of most realities. I mean, whenever someone gives a simplistic answer to a complex problem, it's typically wrong, wrong, wrong. I mean, I think that's the way to look at it. So here's Augustine, without grout, one of the, one of the luminary theological, intellectual figures of the early church, who says that we really can understand our lives through one particular lens, and that is our ultimate telos, the ultimate goal of all things in life, is to love God. I mean, I just, okay, yeah, I mean, I can make a t-shirt out of that for a youth group. It's so simple, right? Love God. That's what it's all about. But see, because Augustine has that kind of theological, philosophical mind that wants to begin to dissect that. You know, so you make these statements. But then now, we're going to hold that statement. Life is about, is about the enjoyment of God. Enjoying God and loving God. That's what life is about. But Augustine's not flat-footed a thinker enough to leave it at that. He's going to begin to press it. And as he presses these things, he says, well, now we need to raise the question about all the other good things in life. I mean, if love of God is the end of all things, then what about family? What about good wine? What about a book? What about going to work? What, and the list goes on and on about the things in our lives that we love as well. And this, this is the classic problem. Many of you parents have had this. I had this problem with my, my middle son, Jackson. One time, lying by him in bed, and he whispers in my ear, Daddy, do you love me more or do you love God more? Right? Like that, that question. And here comes St. Augustine to the rescue. Because Augustine helps orient all of this to understand that all of these things in our lives around us are uses, proper uses, toward that ultimate end. So that I don't have to build a sort of falsely dichotomized life. And that is, am I going to love my wife, or am I going to be a good businessman, or am I going to be a good student, or the list could go on, on, or am I going to love God? That's a false dichotomy for Augustine. All of those good things are uses toward the one end, and that is the enjoyment and the love of God. And why I think Augustine is so important in that is because what he's telling us is that our lives who we are fundamentally as humans. Let's talk about anthropology. What it means to be a human is that we are fundamentally people 
who desire, who hunger, who yearn for love. And that's what Augustine said. I mean, the fundamental thing is to, to love and to be loved. I'm, I'm circling here to the Psalms because I think the Psalms shape us in this Augustinian, let me, big B, biblical framework of understanding our lives. Now, I, I'm just getting into a book, and I'm afraid that you're going to get more of this as our weeks progress. All right, um, But I'm, I'm a bit late to the, to the scene, and I'll give you a couple of book recommendations here. James K.A. Smith has written two books. Uh, one is called Desiring the Kingdom, and the second one is called uh, um, Imagining the Kingdom. Uh, both of those books are very good. Um, I'm, I'm just sort of getting into them. But Smith has been working out this Augustinian insight in a series of, 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 these, of these books. And I'm, I'm a little bit behind the curve because the conversation is going on about them. Um, I'm interested in these books by Smith because he's arguing as someone who's Reformed. He's, he's a Reformed kind of Presbyterian in his thought. So here's someone who's Reformed, and if the Reformed tradition is known for anything, the Reformed tradition is known for being highly cerebral. I mean, this is a kind of intellectual group of people, the Reformed tradition. So here's someone who's Reformed, who's arguing that we are not first and foremost creatures of cognition, creatures who think, but that we are first and foremost creatures of desire. I mean, Augustine was right. Thus is the title of his books, Desiring the Kingdom. Can I give you a few quotes from this? And then we'll keep pressing on. He says this, twenty-five of his first, page 25 of his first book, because our hearts, this is all this Augustinian framework of thinking, We're made to love. We're made to desire. In other words, and he goes on in this book, um, oh, I hope this isn't too delicate, but Victoria's Secret's onto something. That's what he's saying in this book. And he uses that illustration. That's not mine, that's his. Victoria's Secret is onto something. I mean, that kind of, what we might call the sort of wrong move of the erotic, but the playing of eros over agape. I mean, this is what he says in the book, that agape is eros rightly ordered. Right. So Victoria's Secret is offering a kind of um, alternative view here on some of this. So he says, because our hearts are oriented primarily by desire, by what we love, and because those desires are shaped and molded by the habit-forming practices in which we participate, it is the ritual's and the practices of the mall, the liturgies of mall and market, that shape our imagination and how we orient ourselves to the world. End quote. What defines us is what we love. And we participate in rituals, in liturgies, whether they're secular or sacred. We participate in liturgies and rituals that shape and deepen what we love. We're habit-forming people with our habits meant to shape and form what we ultimately love and what we ultimately want. So the core claim of this, these books by Smith, and you're going to hear more about them, I'm afraid to say, but the core claim of the, this book, uh, the, the Desiring the Kingdom, is that liturgies, whether sacred or secular, and by the way, just so we don't think this, this is just highfalutin Episcopalian language liturgy, we'll just, we can just replace liturgy even with worship. We're made as worshiping creatures. We're made to worship something. I mean, the Reformers were onto this. Calvin was very keen on this. We are made as people who are meant to worship. So we will be worshiping something. That's not a question. 
The question is, what is it that's going to be on the heart's throne? That's the pressing question. So we will be worshiping, but what is it that we're going to ultimately worship and love? So the core claim of this book is that liturgies, whether they're sacred or they're secular, they shape and they constitute our identities by forming our most fundamental desires and our most basic attunement to the world. Let me say that again. They shape, they constitute our identities. Liturgy shapes our identity by forming our most fundamental desires and our most basic attunement to the world. Why this has had a thing of impact on me is reflecting again on, on my couple of weeks in the daily ritual of, of, the, of the daily office. Morning prayer, evening prayer. And the way in which over time you've sensed the, sh- the soul-shaping impact that that actually does have on a person. We have liturgies out there. I think this is the other point that we're trying to make. There are liturgies out there within our world that are competing for a liturgy that is shaped by prayer and Scripture and the Word that helps provide us the liturgical framework, the ritualistic framework for understanding the world that is around us. So why do I think the Psalms are so important? The Psalms are important because the Psalms are central to the way in which we worship. They're central uh, to our liturgy. The significance of the Psalms, both within the canon of the Old Testament and, let's just put it in our context, within the Book of Common Prayer, is related to Adams, the guy I've been talking about, to his notion of formation. We need to be formed. Worship is not just cerebral, and worship is not just emotive either. Worship has a forming aspect to it. Our souls are being shaped and formed by the habits that we're learning and our common, uh, and our common worship together. And the Psalms are at the heart of it. The Psalms, or what John Donne called the manna of the soul, were both for Jews and for Christians a soul-shaping corpus. And here we see the important interplay in both in the Book of Common Prayer and in the canon itself, the Bible itself, between our doctrinal commitments, between theology and our worshiping practices. Lex orandi, lex credendi. But if you're around the Anglican tradition long enough, you're going to hear that. Maybe even someone has it tattooed here somewhere. Lex orandi, lex credendi. What does that mean? The law of prayer is the law of belief. And the fun thing about Latin grammar, and this can go for Greek grammar as well, is that you could swap those two and not lose anything. Lex orandi, lex credendi, or lex credendi, lex orandi. What we, the law of what we believe shapes what, how we pray, how we worship. And how we worship and how we pray shapes what we believe. I mean, that's at the heart of Anglican identity. Listen to how how and Pasco uh, defined this in their book on our Anglican heritage, which I think is in our bookstore. They say this, Anglicans have always been conscious of the interwoven and paradoxical relationship between worship and theology. Lex orandi, lex credendi. How a person worships not only flows from what that person really believes, but how a person worship ultimately helps form what that person really believes. See, worship has a forming impact on what we believe. And I've told you this story before in here, and and the person who shared this with me might even be sitting here, so forgive me for repeating it, but I think it bears repeating, about the gentleman who, after a dean's class, I think sometime early in the fall of last year, stopped me and said, you know, I haven't always been a believer, 
And I said, well, how long have you been coming to the Advent? He said, I've been coming for like 20 years. I was like, that's fascinating. I don't, okay, my interest is peaked. Tell me the story. Well, whenever we'd come to the Nicene Creed, I wouldn't say it because I didn't believe it. But I came to worship every Sunday. And then over time, on one Sunday, I can't explain it to you, I believed it. And I said it. And now it was mine. I mean, this is a great illustration, I think, on someone who was regenerated in that kind of moment. But also for those of us who are being regenerated, right? who are being saved, to use Paul's language. The importance of worship informing habits that shape our worldview, that shape our soul, so that when we go out into the competing liturgies around us, we're armed with an arsenal of Bible and prayer, backed by the history of the Christian tradition, to go out into the world to make sense of it. And here Augustine comes back again. And what is that sense? It's not bad to be a desiring person. We are desirous. We're ambitious. We want things. That's not bad And here Augustine comes in to say, but it needs to be ordered properly because all of those internal yearnings, all of that inner ambition that wells up within you, all of those things that are are driven by desire yell at you. They scream at you in your soul and in your conscience and in your heart, to use biblical language, that you are desirous of something ultimate. This is Craig's sermon's point, right? We're, we're desirous of something ultimate. And that is, we want to love and know God. So the Psalms are important. Why? Lex credendi, lex orandi. What we believe influences how we pray, and how we pray and how we worship influences how we believe. In ways, let me just go ahead and put this to you. In ways that I don't think you and I even know. You know, I had my eight-year-old by me in worship today, nudging him, you know, like 30% of the time to sort of keep it together. But, you know, here he is, you know, by me for, the, for worship. And, and that's what's going through my mind. I know it's going through my wife's mind as well. Lord, let this ritual, right, which I don't think is always a bad term, let this ritual, let this liturgy that he's starting to say, that the words are starting to come out of his mouth, that he might not even understand the full implications of it, but let it start shaping him now in ways that he doesn't even know. And that's happened to you and it's happened to me. It's the gift of coming in and, inv- and involving ourselves in this deep Catholic religion, this deep Catholic worship, Laura C., Catholic worship that we, that we involve ourselves in. It's very important. My own doctoral supervisor, um, Christopher Seitz, tells a story um, in one of his books that he didn't, he, you know, he's like, why is it that I'm so resistant to certain kinds of non-theological readings of Isaiah 53? You know Isaiah 53, the servant who bears our sins. All we like sheep have gone astray. God laid. I mean, it's it's the it's the reading on Good Friday. He's like, why is it that I was resistant to readings that were not theological or trinitarian or christological? Why? And he said it just dawned on me. And it's like, well, I don't know why it took so long to dawn, but it just dawned on me because I grew up in the Anglican tradition. I grew up in a place where on Good Friday that was read to me every Good Friday. Because I can't remember a Good Friday where I didn't hear Isaiah 53 read in conjunction with our crucified Lord. And it was so ingredient in him that even in sometimes a non-reflective sense, unwittingly, it was impinging on the way in which he understood that biblical text. That is happening to you and it's happening to me in ways that we don't even know. And it's why the Psalter is so important. Because the Psalter comes at us to shape us and to form us. Okay. Well, that was all introduction. You still here? You haven't checked out yet, have you? All right. Um, 
one other one other bit about this as we move to the Psalms. Now, some of you have heard me talk about this before, so I'll make this very very brief. Um, but when we think about the soul shaping character of the Psalter, you and I might tend to think of the Psalms as primarily human words expressing human emotion and religious affection to God. And I would say to you, that is right. It is true. And when you get into the Psalter, you know that the Psalter is, is ready-made. It's, it's almost as if you have coats that are hanging in the closet of the Psalter ready for you to put on in all of the exigencies of life that you're about to encounter. So when you enter into lamentation and you enter into suffering or the dark night of the soul, guess what? There's a coat in the Psalter ready for you to put on. Psalm 13, Psalm 88. Psalm 44. I mean, there are psalms that are ready for you to put on to help you negotiate and to shape your soul and to authorize you to talk to God in risky ways. By the way, if we were to quantify the Psalter and sort of lay them out according to their genre, which is its own kind of modern construct, but if we did that according to genre, there are more psalms of lamentation, complaining psalms, lament psalms than any other kind. Isn't that something? In other words, as if the Psalter is preparing us, if it's shaping our souls, to recognize that suffering and lamentation and hard conversations with God are ingredient to the Christian life. It's not extraneous. It's ingredient to what it means to be someone who lives life in the presence of God. And all of those lament psalms, except for one, and it's a bit of a juggernaut, but all of those lament psalms move us ultimately to praise. You don't even have to know Hebrew to see it. I mean, it's very definitive in Hebrew. You have the complaint, Oh Lord, where are you? I'm in my misery. I'm seeing the wicked and they're prospering and the righteous are suffering. Your enemies are about to make fun of you. That kind of uh, complaint to God. And then there's that three-letter English word, B-U-T. But I have trusted in your unfailing love. The Hebrew there is we call that a vav consecutive. There's a vav consecutive that moves us from the complaint into the praise. Despite that, O Lord, I'm going to trust in your unfailing love. And just so we kind of get a sense of the canonical shape of the Psalter as a whole, the whole Psalms are moving toward that. With Psalm 145 through 150 all being these exuberant uh, praise songs, uh, these, these, these songs of adoration and praise. On timbrels and flutes and drums and horns. I mean, it's a, it's a praise fest, I guess, at the end of the Psalter. So here you have these psalms, lament psalms, praise psalms, all of them ready for the exigencies of your life. Because right now, you might be in a position of thanksgiving. You might be in a position where you're out of, you were drowning last year for whatever reason. But this year, you're standing outside of that pool. Still a little wet, but you're standing outside that pool and you know you're safe now. Psalm 42. There it is for you. Right? Oh Lord, you've saved me, you've blessed me. These kinds of thanksgivings for what God has done. Or maybe you're in a place of just exuberant praise and joy. Because all of life is praise, and to praise is to live. That's kind of the way the Psalter works. To praise is to live, and to live is to praise. That's just, it's all ingredient there. And that psalm's ready for you to wear as well. And why I think this is fascinating is some of you may have noticed this in your Bibles before, but at the end of chapter 41, at the end of uh, Psalm 72, at the end of Psalm 106, you'll see, in your, even in your English Bibles, that it says book 1, book 2, book 3. Do you know how many books there are in the Psalter? 
you've seen your English Bibles? There's five. There's five books of the, of the Psalms. That are, so in other words, the Psalms in their final form have been shaped according to a five-book structure. What else in the Old Testament is a five-book structure? The Pentateuch, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Torah. And by the way, how does Psalm 1 begin? How blessed is the man who does not stand, who does not sit, who does not, how's that go? Sit, stand, walk, however that go, right? Who does not, who does not hang out with the ungodly, but his delight is in the, the Torah, right? It's his delight is in the law of the Lord. He delights in the instruction of God. So here you have the Psalter that is mirroring in its canonical form. It's, sh- it's, it's shaped in such a way as to mimic the Pentateuch itself. I think the effect of that, the canonical effect of that in the shaping of the Psalms is to say these are not merely human words to God, but this is also God's word to us. It's Torah. It's instruction for what life looks like. A life of praise that's filled with all of the complexities that a life of praise has. And one could argue, I would argue this, that if one takes that canonical shaping seriously, and I do, it doesn't always work, but I think on the whole it works, that book four of the Psalter that moves from book three, which are the, some of the darkest of the Psalms are in book three. Remember I said there's one lament psalm that doesn't end in praise? It's Psalm 88, the second to the last psalm in book three. It's a dark section. But then you move into book four, and it's been argued that actually Psalms 96 to 100 form the editorial heart of the Psalter. And what is at the editorial heart of the Psalter? Yahweh is king. Despite the fact that Israel had suffered its exile, despite that Israel had suffered a kingless time, Yahweh is king. Yahweh is on his throne and Yahweh is returning. God is on his throne. And so Psalm 100 which is so strategically placed in morning prayer. I mean, think about how morning prayer sets it out. We have a confession of sin. So we admit who we are. We have to confess our sins. That's how we begin our worship. By the way, just as an aside here, I was doing some reflecting this summer on the wrestling of Jacob with with God at the river Jabbok. You know this story? I just love this story. I mean, here Jacob sends his family across the way. And he says, I'll come over. He stays on the other side of the river. And then a man shows up. I mean, from Jacob's perspective, he's not sure who this is, but it's something significant. A man shows up, and they begin to wrestle. (laughs) And they wrestle all through the night, which would be horribly uncomfortable to observe, right? But there they are, and they're wrestling by the river. And and then finally, this person, and it dawns on, on Jacob that this must be the angel of the Lord. I mean, I'm, I'm wrestling with God himself here. The angel of the Lord says to, to um, God says to Jacob, what is your name? It's a powerful question. And how, what, what does he say? My name is Jacob. My name is supplanter, deceiver. I mean, Jacob's about to get a name change. You remember this? No longer. He wrestled with God all through the night, all through the night. And no longer will your name be Jacob, supplanted. But now you'll be Yisrael, the one who has striven with God and prevailed. That's your name now. But before that massive change occurs in the fundamental identity of Jacob, he has to confess his name, who he really is. I mean, this is what we do every Sunday when we come together. 
Now, it might be, I mean, we might not always be reflective on that. I might not be either. But ingredient to this worship that we're involved in, this liturgy, we begin by saying, my name's Jacob. That's who I am. I'm a deceiver. I'm a sinner. I have to confess who I really am to you, O Lord. And then after the confession, we get the absolution so that we know the truth of the gospel, which reigns over that. Our identity is Jacob. But now we are Christian, right? Open our lips and our mouths will show forth their praise. And then we have the invitatory, which is Psalm 95, 1-7, and 96, 9-13, and then the Jubilate, Psalm 100. So I wanted to reflect on Psalm 100 because I think it could be a kind of pinnacle here toward the whole of the, of the psalm. Oh, I see the time. So I'm going to do this very, very quickly. Matter of fact, I might even put a little bit of hold on it, but here we go. So if we take Psalm 100 as a cumulative response to everything that preceded it in Psalm 96 through 99, we see that we praise the Lord here in this extravagant way because He's not left us kingless. Surely the earthly king is problematic, but the Lord still reigns. Our hope in Psalm 100, and I'm hoping to help us think about this as we say the Jubilate together over there in corporate worship. But when we say Psalm 100, we are confessing something eschatologically. We're confessing that we believe something at the end to be true. And that the Lord is King despite the fact that we recognize all the difficulties and the complexities of this world that we're in now. I recognize that Yahweh is on His throne. He's on His throne. Isn't that the scene that we have in the book of Revelation? Chapters 4 and 5? What was going on in chapters 2 to 3? I mean, here's Jesus going through the lampstands of His church. And He's saying, you know what? Just so you don't think this is all Old Testament stuff. I mean, this is Jesus walking through the lampstands of His church saying, all's not well in these churches. And matter of fact, if, if you don't get reflective on why things aren't well, then I can't guarantee that your lampstand will even be there anymore. Smyrna, Laodicea, Ephesus, and the list goes on and on. But here you have the sort of the mess of church life and the mess of political life. I mean, the book of Revelation is a kind of political taking the knee over against Nero and his reign. So Nero's on the throne. What a mess. The church has its own kind of problems. There was never a sort of pristine, pure, golden age in the church. We're sinners. And the church has always been a sinful place. But then in, verse, in chapters 4 to 5, where are we thrust? Right into the very throne room of God. And what's going on there? Unending unaltered, unencumbered praise and worship of the one who was and is and is to come. It's a confession when we do the Jubilate together. It's a confession that we believe that our King is on His throne. In verse 3, it's a confession that we are His. We're His. Do you, can you see how fundamentally shaping that is of our identity? I mean, the way in which we conceive of ourselves, both knowingly and unknowingly. Because you know this is true, right? I mean, you know it's true. I do too. We think about ourselves a lot, right? A lot. About who am I? What am I doing in this world? What's really important? I mean, the language of the book of Ecclesiastes is not unique to Ecclesiastes. I'm sure you struggle with these things as I do as well. It's, I, mean, there's, I mean, look at life 
I th- and we'll talk about this this fall. We're going to do some stuff in the Old Testament. But I mean, when you look at something like Ecclesiastes and, and, and Kohelet, the preacher says, all is vanity. It's not really a great translation. I think it probably better should, should be rendered, all is absurdity. It's just absurd. It's horrible. I mean, you live in this, don't you? How fundamental it is here in the Jubilate of Psalm 100 to recognize that despite all of that complexity, we are His. I mean, isn't that how Dietrich Bonhoeffer ended his famous poem, Who Am I? I didn't bring it to read it to you, but you know the poem, Who Am I? Others see me as this, I see myself as this. It's this kind of searching, existential poem that Bonhoeffer wrote while he was in prison. And then the last line, well, whoever I am, O Lord, you know that I am thine. In other words, whoever, whatever my self-perception is, however I order my thinking about who I am, because you, you know it's true. I mean, self-perception is more often self-deception than not, right? That's why we need wives. That's why I need one, right? <laughs> I mean, self-perception is self-deception. And here we have the psalmist telling us right at the beginning, we praise the king on his throne, and our fundamental identity is shaped by the understanding that we are His. What's the point of all this? We'll come back to Psalm 100 a little bit next week as well. What's the point of all this? We're hungry. We're desirous people. We're people that are driven by the need to love and to be loved. And you see it going on in the world all around us with competing liturgies everywhere, from the mall to the football stadium. There are competing liturgies everywhere. And here is the scriptural liturgy. Here's our common worship together with Psalm 100 that tells us your identity, who you are. You are people that recognize the sovereignty of your king and the fact that you are first and foremost his. Let's close in prayer. Father, we're thankful that you have given us your word, that you've given us, Lord, something like the Psalter, that meets us in all of the array of our lives and helps us, Lord, to pray. Well, I struggle with prayer. I'm sure many of my friends here do as well. Thank you for giving us such a large deposit in your holy word of Scripture that helps give us the grammar and the syntax to be able to put words together to talk to you. Shape our lives, Lord, by the liturgy that we enjoy together so that our souls would be directed toward our ultimate enjoyment, which is you. In Jesus' name, amen.